You're listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival, a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year, from artists to brain surgeons, fashion designers to board directors. I'm Valerie Koo and I'm the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, writer and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, we discover the personalities and passions of people who meld their cultural traditions with this sunburnt country they call home. In this episode, I'm chatting to Eddie Wu, who has carved a niche on YouTube as Mr. WooTube, where his unique and popular explanations about maths have led him to become one of the most watched personalities on the web. In 2018, he was awarded the Australia's Local Hero Award. Eddie also gave the Australia Day Address in New South Wales in 2018, the first time a teacher has done so. And he was named a top 10 finalist in the Global Teacher Prize. He's also recently published his book, Woo's Wonderful World of Maths, Worldwide with Pan McMillan. Eddie, thanks for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure, Valerie. Thanks for your time. Now, what does Lunar New Year mean to you? My family, having a Chinese background, has always made a big deal about Lunar New Year. And it's kind of lovely that even now, even though I don't um, have a lot of the traditions that I've carried on from, you know, my parents, uh, I still get together with my family, my wife's family, and a lot of lot of cousins and kids now. And we, you know, we celebrate with a lot of the traditional foods. We pass on our little red packets. And for me, it's just a wonderful, you know, celebration and um, something I always look forward to every year. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you've gained quite a profile as one of Australia's most popular teachers. You were the first teacher to give the Australia Day Address in New South Wales in 2018. You won the Australia's Local Hero Award at the Australian of the Year Awards and named a top 10 finalist in the Global Teacher Prize. Now, what drew you to teaching in the first place and why maths? Yeah, so those are two very distinct questions. So I'll, I'll answer them one at a time, I guess. I really loved the idea of teaching. It kind of sort of dawned on me when I was probably in the middle of high school. There were a bunch of extracurricular activities that I had the privilege of being a part of. And um, during those, I got the opportunity to actually, you know, mentor younger kids, uh, be able to, uh, you know, take a younger student who maybe didn't have as many skills, was perhaps learning or to take on a new responsibility. And even though I was only a few years above them, I could sort of, you know, hold their hand, tell them, okay, this is how you, you know, if it was in my army cadet unit, here's how you pitch a tent. Um, If it was, you know, as a peer support leader, here's how you find your way around the school. And I realized that, you know, those opportunities to help someone learn, I just absolutely fell in love with those and I realized that not everyone was the same I thought it was a universal thing that uh you know the look in someone's eyes when they have this flash of realization I thought that was something that everyone really enjoyed but uh, as I talked to my friends and also to my teachers they're like no no this is really a unique thing about you and you ought to you know pursue this and see if it's something you could make a you know a career out of so that's kind of where I fell in love with teaching I thought I could do that every day That'd be a really great gig. Um, wow. As for mathematics, I uh, I had no intent actually to become a mathematics teacher. I when I was at school, I really loved the humanities, which is not really the stereotype <laughs> for someone from my background. I was a bit of an English and history geek, and I still love those subjects very much. Uh, but for those reasons, mathematics teaching was quite far away from the front of my mind. Yeah. Uh, it was only when I, I arrived at university and uh, I found out that there was there's a real shortage of mathematics teachers. Uh, in New South Wales. Actually, I've since learned that it's not just New South Wales, it's all of Australia. 
Um, and it's not even just our country. I was really fortunate over the last couple of years been able to interact with educators from all around the world. And this is something which is very common, um, mm. you know, whether it's in the U.S., or in Africa, or in you know, Russia, I met a, a woman who's a teacher there, and she's like, yes, we have exactly the same shortages. So it was that lack of, that need, I guess, uh, for mathematics educators who are qualified and passionate, when I realized that there was uh, something I could do to help with that need, that's kind of what led me into this field in the first place. But were you interested, were you passionate about maths at school? Because you just said that you were really into the humanities. Yeah, look, the short answer is no. Um, I always knew. I, I had, um, I had, you know, my, I have older brothers, an older brother, an older sister. And particularly from my brother, I learned, uh, you know, he, he was always fairly gifted at mathematics and he knew a lot more about mathematics than I ever did when I was in high school. And I sort of, from him, I got the sense that, okay, there's something to this subject. I don't really get it. I don't really love it the way my brother does, but there must be something because he seems to find this great joy and wonder from this, from this subject. And so I guess I sort of had in the back of my mind that there would be, there was something there, just I'd never grasped it. And so it kind of was a little bit of a leap of faith, not having a real you know, commitment to the subject at the beginning. Um, it was a bit of a risk to kind of go out on a limb and say, you know what, I'm just going to try and see how this goes. And I'm just really glad I made that decision. Wow. Okay. So you were born in Sydney. Uh, your parents are ethnic Chinese. Um, they migrated from Malaysia in the 70s. What was your yeah. experience like growing up here in the you know late 80s, early 90s, I assume, in Sydney? Was it a pretty normal childhood? Did you ever feel or think you were different? What was it like? Yeah, look, I guess in some ways, even though it's a bit of a contradiction in terms, I feel like it was a bit of all of that. Um, I mean, I never felt like I was doing anything unusual. You know, I didn't feel like anything special. But I did recognize that, you know, growing up in Australia, particularly in the area that I uh, was raised in, there weren't a huge number of people of Asian backgrounds there. And so I did, I sort of stuck out a little bit in my primary school. Um, you know, and I was, I was, I look back on that time and I recognize, you know, it's fairly common for, you know, children, uh, I think it's a, it's a natural instinct for them to sometimes be quite afraid of people who look different to them, who sound different to them, who perhaps have different values. And that was, that was a challenge growing up. Uh, my brother and sister and I, we all experienced um, varying sort of degrees of, of bullying and racism as we sort of grew up. And it was very, I think the thing about it that struck me uh, most now in reflection is just and that seemed normal. That didn't seem out of the ordinary. You know, when my parents sort of, uh, you know, heard about it the first time, they were kind of like, yeah, you know, this is what happened to us when we arrived. And it's, it's not great, obviously, but it's something, it's a price worth paying to be in this country, which has so many tremendous advantages. And so I, you know, didn't view it as anything particularly out of the ordinary, uh, even though I look back at that time and I realized it was quite a formative time in my life because of those difficulties. Yeah, what a great attitude. So did your parents incorporate many cultural traditions into your lifestyle growing up? It's interesting because, uh, again, this is similar to what I just said, but uh, yes and no. So I'll give you an example. Um, they were very uh, insistent that even though they wanted English to be our first language, they did insist on things like uh, being able to say the correct name of a food, not just say <laughs> it's pork belly. They wanted us to pronounce it, you know, in the in the correct in, in Cantonese. And I'm not yeah. I'm deliberately not pronouncing it now because I know all of my intonations are wrong. So even they try their best, but I, you know, I'll go to a restaurant and I order order all of the foods in Chinese, but the waiter or waitress 
will say the foods back to me with the intonation correct. And I'm kind of like, yeah, you really, you didn't need to do that. Like, you know, I feel like they just sort of are saying, I I want you to know that I know you're pronouncing them wrong. Um, so that's kind of funny. I, um, you know, similar thing with my relatives. Um, you know, this is, I find this hilarious to this day. They would ask us to call them by their correct title. So, you know, in Cantonese, it was, you know, first paternal uncle, second paternal uncle, yes. you know, third paternal uncle's wife, and all of the according meetings with that. Yes. But the thing was, I didn't know that they were titles. I just knew that that's what I called them. And so not knowing how to speak Chinese, I just thought that, that was, those were their names. And I remember reading reading once, like, it was a wedding invitation to, uh, we, we'd gone back to Malaysia and we were there with the family. And there was this, um, uh, a wedding invitation to Matthew. And I was like, who is Matthew? And they're like, you know, that's Daibak. I'm like, what do you mean? Which is his name? Is it is it that or is it you know? Is, and I'm like, his name is Matthew. You've been calling him, you know, Big Uncle this whole time. And I was like, what? And I was, you know, I don't know, 13 years old this time, and my, I felt like my whole life is a lie. Like I've been calling this, and I thought this is who you are, and I didn't even know what your real name was. So I don't know if that sort of gives you a sense of they had that tradition. It's like, yes, this is what you call them. Um, this is who they are. But I. I didn't understand so many of those things. Um, and I've only learned a lot of them in adulthood, to be honest, which I still think is quite funny. Yes, I think that's hilarious that you thought that they were their names. All right, so yeah. there's, there's this stereotype that Asian parents have very high expectations of their kids and they want them to be very studious and, and so on. Did your parents have those expectations of you or put any pressure on you to succeed? I think my parents definitely had uh, high expectations of us, you know, um, they made it pretty clear that they came to this country as a very deliberate choice and it was to give us opportunities that we wouldn't have um, been able to enjoy otherwise. So that kind of uh, responsibility on our shoulders, of, you, know, you, have a, you have a great wealth that's been handed to you, a great opportunity, don't waste it. You know, this world-class education that you're getting for free, um, mm. don't, don't treat it as something which should take uh, for granted and sort of not appreciate. So that was definitely something that was front and center. But at the same time, and I didn't realize how countercultural this was at the time, they were very deliberate about giving us our own choices. Um, so, you know, my uh, brother and sister and I, we all made career choices that to varying degrees, our parents probably would have preferred us to choose other things. <laughs> but they allowed us to make those choices. And, you know, for me in particular, I argued for months with my parents about wanting to go into education. And they were, um, you know, they went back and forth and uh, there were some really heated arguments. But in the end, they allowed me to choose what I wanted, um, somewhat against their wishes. And, you know, they, I think to their credit, allowed us to make our own mistakes and learn the lessons from, you know, whatever choices we happened to make, whether they were for good or for ill. I'm curious to know if you argued back and forth with them about going into education, what did they want you to do? Uh, well, because, as I mentioned before, I had this love for these humanities, I think there was this dream in their mind that I might go into law and I might become a barrister. They were like, yeah. oh, he's very, you know, he's a communicator, he loves language, um, and he's really into reading. This seems like a natural fit. Uh, but for me, you know, I. I contemplated that very briefly, and I think that I, a lot of my friends are lawyers, and they, you know, they do a lot of. I think that the legal system is so important to society, but I just never could bring myself to take my personality and the skills that I have and my values, and um, see that that was going to be a viable kind of um, 
vocation for me. And so, yeah, I think that's what they would have loved for me to have done. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm really grateful they allowed me to go down a different path instead. So you have a ridiculously popular channel on YouTube. You're known as Mr. WooTube, where you explain maths. And at last count, it has well over half a million subscribers. Tell us about why you started that YouTube channel and what you were trying to achieve. Yeah, it's kind of crazy hearing you say half a million because mm. uh, that, that number is just sort of, I can't even picture what that number really looks like. Um, <laughs> You're a maths teacher. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, right? But it's just sort of bananas. I mean, I, I teach at a very large school. It's 2,000 students. It's actually the largest secondary school in New South Wales. And even even the size of that school, who um, it's, it's quite a famous thing, staff, when they're new teachers and they join our school, they kind of, they just look at our whole student assembly and they just mind just boggles at the size of it. And um, the school is actually so large, we can't even fit the entire school body in one place at one time because there are so many of us and then we've sort of outgrown our school hall. But, you know, to contrast that with where things began, I never imagined that there would be a mass sort of market appeal for, you know, videos of, they're not even me explaining maths you know, as a, oh, here's a cool, you know, attractive, you know, visual for me to show you. It's just me in my classroom. It is the most transparent experience of a public high school classroom lesson um, that I could give you. I, I you know, my students um, walk into the classroom, I set up the camera in the middle of the room, and I just hit record, and then the lesson just kind of unfurled. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, that's kind of where it all began. I wanted my classroom lessons to be something which um, my students could experience outside of school, uh, in particular, there was one student, and he was um, he was actually diagnosed with a with cancer, and so he was going to miss weeks and weeks of school. And uh, because I was not very good, I was not very talented at mathematics when I was at school. I knew that if he was away, he missed five weeks of classes. He was going to come back, and he was just going to be completely confused. That's yeah. the way I was when I missed like a couple of days of school, let alone a couple of weeks or a couple of months. So really it was just out of the desire to help this one student that I wanted to record the videos so that he could access them when he wasn't with us. And for me, it's just been a delight and a uh, a pleasure, uh, a really pleasing surprise to see how many people beside the original audience have Mm -hmm. been able to see the videos as well and benefit. Yeah, from all over the world. So what do you think is the key to helping students get maths? Uh, look, I think that um, one of the tricky things here is there are a lot of different keys. And, you know, on any given day, I'll stand up in front of, I just came out of my year eight classroom half an hour ago. And, uh, you know, there are, there are 25 kids that sitting in front of me, uh, all of whom have different backgrounds, who have different particular learning preferences, and um, they have different uh, gaps in their knowledge or different strengths. And so I kind of need a different key for every single one of those students. But for me, like, I mean, if I could give you some very broad brushstrokes, I think it's really important that um, teaching mathematics comes with a story. I mean, we associate stories with subjects like English and history uh, because we learn them by telling stories. But mathematics is its own story. It's it's got a beginning and a middle and an end. And if you you know if you can imagine, uh, you know what's a recent you know the Harry Potter uh, books, the Harry Potter movies. If you can imagine dropping someone in at like book five out of seven and just expecting them to know what's going on without any introduction to who these characters are and why that person's angry at that one and why they're upset. Why did this person suddenly die? Are they important? You know, um, if you introduce mathematics to someone 
in the middle of the story, as it were, without uh, you know regard to what came before and where we're going next, are you sort of begging for confusion? And so I teach my mathematics like a story. I think that's really important. Uh, and I think that also that personal connection with a student, you know, mathematics isn't going to mean very much until you can see its connection to your own life and your own context. So mm. it's a really important thing for me to get to know the student and where I can relate mathematics to what they're interested in. Apart from your obvious passion for teaching, it's very apparent to me that you have an extremely positive attitude to life and getting through life. Where do you think that comes from? Wow, that's um, that's a really interesting question to answer. Look, I think that in many ways, um, you know, I, I, I'm very conscious of the fact that, you know, because my parents uh, very deliberately chose to move to Australia where my brother and sister and I were born, I'm very conscious of the fact that not just me, but definitely including me, um, we, uh, so many of us, live out our lives benefiting from the choices and the sacrifices of others. So I'm constantly thankful for, you know, I get to work in a public school system resourced by, you know, in a, in a country where we think it's so important that young people get an education that we make it illegal for them not to go to school until age 17. You know, I was working, mm-hmm. um, doing some work in Africa last year. I um, have a friend of mine who um, started up a school actually in, in Uganda and, uh, you know, to go there and to see that their hardest challenge is to get kids to stay in school because, you know, by the time they hit age nine or 10, they are fantastically useful on a farm and, you know, it's an agrarian society. And so, you know, it's really difficult to get kids to stay in school past year two or year three. To contrast that with what we get to be grateful for here in Australia, um, that's just something which makes me you know, really positive and really thankful for the things that I get to receive. Um, I'm also a Christian. And so I know that grace is a huge part of my identity. I, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who has earned their way. That's not um, the way uh, that that religion works. I'm someone who's received things freely and, and doesn't deserve the great things that I have received. And so I want to pass that grace on to the people who I get to work with. And it's hard not to have a positive attitude when you know you've received so many things um, out of grace. So mm. for me, I think those are the big sort of um, the foundations of my character and why I look at the world the way I do. You recently released a book, Wu's Wonderful World of Maths. Why did you want to write that book? And was that because writing about maths is not the <laughs> the easiest <laughs> thing, I imagine. So why did you want to write it and how did you go about determining what to put in it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was a huge challenge because um, a lot of people said to me, you know, maths and words, it's a very common belief that those two don't really mix. What's up with that? And so it was, um, it was really hard. And especially because I'm not an author by training, I'm a teacher. Um, it was um, a lot of, it was a steep learning curve. And that's definitely 50,000 words of my life that I will never get back. And it was a hard <laughs> few to write that. Um, but for me, really, it was the overflow of, you know, I, I mentioned before that I want to teach mathematics in a way that connects to my students. And so, you know, if I'm, if I'm walking into my class and I'm, I'm going to teach them about quadratic equations and what does a, a, a parabola, the shape that comes out of graphing one of these equations, what does that have to do with anything? Well, for me, I had to do a lot of research as a teacher. I've been teaching more than 10 years now, so that's me, you know, spending all of those days and weeks and months 
trying to learn this subject and, you know, what does it have that's relevant to the students whom I'm teaching? And so, you know, I realized, I started to learn, oh, did you know that the shape of um, the, the path traced out by any object that you throw through the air, whether it's a ball or shooting water out of a hose or, you know, launching a rocket into space, um, the shape that's drawn out by every single one of those objects is a perfect parabola. It's kind of like one of the arches of the McDonald's sign, you know. That, for me, learning those connections between the mathematics, those abstract symbols and equations, and connecting it to everyday life, to our everyday experience, um, that, for me, is my job as a teacher. And when I sort of gathered a whole lot of these, I sort of started to realize, you know, I, I wish I'd known some of this when I was in school. I wish I'd been shown that. I think I might have enjoyed this subject a whole lot more if I'd known that. And so I thought, well, maybe I should put these into a book so anyone can actually encounter these, uh, whether they have that experience from their teacher or not. So that was kind of the impetus behind the book. Mm, love it. What's been the most challenging thing in your life? Uh, wow, that's a hard call to make because um, there, are so many, there are so many things to choose from. Um, I probably have to say right at the top of the list, um, the most challenging thing is being a parent. Uh, you know, <laughs> I have three children and uh, my kids are age 5, 8, 10. And, uh, you know, they, I remember when we, my wife was pregnant with our first child and some of our older friends, they said to me, you know, uh, they tried to give me all of this advice about how to do parenting. And they'd give me all these helpful suggestions. And then at the end, they would say, oh, but by the way, nothing prepares you. Like, it doesn't matter how many things you get told. It doesn't matter how many helpful tips you get. Um, there is nothing like actually being in, you know, being in the hot seat and having to manage, you know, uh, a, 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 a troublesome toddler uh, <laughs> while you're sleep deprived, trying to manage your full-time job and um, all of these things, juggling them all at the same time. Uh, nothing can really teach you apart from doing it yourself. And I'm still learning a lot of lessons. I expect to be doing that for many years. So that's probably the top one. Um, but the, I can, maybe the other thing, which is probably relevant to, you know, my life in the last 12 months is I never expected or planned for or worked toward any of the um, incredible opportunities or fame that I've, or recognition that I've received. So it's a really weird, uh, it's a lovely problem to have, but it's a really challenging thing to try and work out how do I take on these opportunities, work out what to say yes and what to say no mm. to, and to uh, maximize those whilst at the same time being a husband and a father and a, uh, you know, just a teacher at my own school all at the same time. Um, just like being a parent, no one tells you how to do any of that stuff. So mm. I am learning on the job. Uh, well, it's kind of a good position to be in. But um, as you mentioned, you have three kids. Do you incorporate many cultural traditions, you know, whether that's food or rituals or beliefs or anything, into your lifestyle with your children these days? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of it really is, and I'm not ashamed of it. Um, it's just sort of important from what my parents taught me. You know, I want them to know, um, you know, to to speak with respect to their you know, their older relatives. And I think that's kind of what the titles all meant. You don't call that person by their first name. They have a, a specific relationship to you and you want to give them honor and so that through. So, you know, they call their parents, you know, uh, grandma and grandpa, but in, in Chinese as best as they can. Um, mm. I, I want my kids to grow up with um, broad taste buds. And I was actually a really picky eater when I was young, but something I did definitely learn is to appreciate Eastern and Western food all at the same time. So things like that, um, things like, uh, you know, making sure that 
Uh, they understand the meaning of when they receive this little red envelope with, which has a few dollars in it. Like, what does that mean? It's about, you know, the commitment of one generation to the next to um, look after them and, and, and sort of work toward their prosperity. So there are lots of little things like that, um, little cultural artifacts that I do as best I can to help my kids learn. And finally, what are you looking forward to the most in the year of the pig? <laughs> I, um, I've, I've had someone ask me once, like, oh, what's your guilty pleasure? And without hesitation, I said, uh, definitely food. So I think if you had fitting for the year of the pig, um, I've had the privilege of being able to travel to lots of places over the last 12 months, um, you know, uh, around the country and even internationally, at using, you know, my opportunities as a mathematics educator and a communicator. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, I've had a bit of a whirlwind year over 2018, so I'm hoping also to spend lots more time with family. That'll be um, a really big thing that I'm working toward over the course of 2019. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Eddie. Oh, value is my pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Eddie Wu. You can find out more about Eddie at mrwutube.com. Thanks for listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival. My name's Valerie Koo and you can connect with me at valeriekoo.com. To find out more about the City of Sydney's Sydney Lunar Festival, go to sydneylunarfestival.com. Or to find out more about the people featured in this podcast and to keep up to date with the next season, go to newstories.net.au.